As our children are leaving, I invite you to turn back to that scripture that we read a little earlier in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. One of my favorite books is John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress. If you're familiar with it, you'll know that the main character is Christian. And Christian, throughout the book, is on a journey. He starts out in the city of destruction, but he leaves there and makes a, he's headed toward the celestial city. And as he's traveling, he comes across many people. But in one episode, he comes across a man by the name of Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman is actually crossing and going the opposite direction that Christian is. And that's obviously on purpose. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman is from the town of Carnal Policy. And in talking to Christian, he tries to divert him from going the direction that evangelist had told him to go in order to reach the celestial city. And he tells Christian the reason why he shouldn't go that route is because there's too many troubles and pains that way. If he keeps going, worldly wiseman says, his burden will only get heavier. So he starts to take the advice of Mr. Worldly Wiseman and turns around from the way that evangelist told him to go and starts heading back the way that he came. But as soon as he turns around, he's once again greeted by and he meets evangelists. And evangelist sternly warns him not to listen to Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And the reason is this, because he loves doctrines that help him and others avoid the cross. You see, his way, evangelist says, seems good, but it only leads to danger And deadly diversion. John Bunyan and our text, the Apostle John, they both understand all about Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And they want to let us know that that story about Mr. Worldly Wiseman really is not just something fictional, although it is. It's really more than that because as Christians ourselves, we are walking away from the city of destruction and we are on our way to heaven. And on our Jesus journey, if I could say it that way, There are many opportunities that the worldly wise men of our age will give us to turn around and go back the other way. And they will tell us that there is an easier road. They will tell us that your burden will become too heavy and it's impossible to go that route. It's just really not worth it. There's less trouble and pain if you go the way of the world. All of us as Christians, are confronted with the alternatives to the heavenly way all the time. But I hope this morning, as you read the text with me and we study it together, that you will come to believe that those ways of the world are deceptions and lies. And all they do is lead to danger and destruction. So in light of that, let me ask a question, and I hope to answer it throughout the sermon this morning, is how can you face the tension, and you'll see the tension in our text if you haven't already when we read it, how do I face the tension of loving God and loving the world? How do I face that and stay on the right road, the right path, the right journey the entire way? Well, John's going to tell us the answer to that because here's what you need. You need to know and understand this key truth that's presented in our passage, and that is this. Who you are will determine what you love. Let me say that again. Who you are will determine what you love. 
And that's obvious. We see it all the time in our world. If you are a barber or maybe a hairstylist is the term nowadays, you will love to cut hair. You'll love to do that. If you are a fireman, you're going to love to fight fires, obviously. If you're a doctor, you're going to love to heal people. If you're an Eagles fan, you're going to love to lose games. Right? If you're a Christian, John says, you will love the Father. And if you're not, you will love the world. John demonstrates in these two paragraphs how those two things, who you are and what you love, go together. We're going to look at them one at a time. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, it's about our identity. It's about who we are. And John's going to start off, before he tells us not to love the world, he has to give you a foundation and a basis for doing it. And he's going to tell you, this is who you are if you're a Christian. And then in verses 15 through 17, he's going to connect it by telling him, based on who you are, this is how and what you should love. So let's unpack them one at a time. There's only two. Verses 12 through 14. Now, let me tell you, it's a little complicated, but follow me because it's worth listening to. These two paragraphs, although at surface value don't seem to connect or belong together, they actually do. And John does it in a way that he does no other part of this epistle. He connects them with a numerous sets of triads, as one commentator says. In a nice way, it's simple sets of three. He starts it out, and you can underline if you do that in your Bible. In verses 12 and 13, he says, and you can see it. You probably notice how much he repeated. I write unto you. He does that in the opening three times. And all the first three times he says, I'm writing to you. Here's the purpose. They're all in the present tense. Then he does it again in the end of 13 and 14. He says it over again. I write unto you three more times. Another set of three. But this time they're in the past tense. In other words, this is what happened to you back there. And it still is happening in your life. He also says in verses 12 through 14, another set of three. He calls them identity markers. Vocatives. He says this. You are children. And there's a group called fathers. And there's a third group called young men. Now, he takes those little sets of three in the first paragraph and he connects them and shows us those two paragraphs that go together by more sets of three in the second paragraph, verses 15 through 17. See, he uses the word world two sets of three of that, six times. Love he uses three times, reference to God three times. He says there are three things in the world that define it. The lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He uses the word desire three times. And so on and on and on he goes. So in these two texts, you can see by the way he uses these sets of three that he wants us to connect this, and I want to do it in your mind and heart this morning, this truth. Who I am, who you are, will determine what you love. John undoubtedly wanted us to understand how those two things go together. And here's why. Because before you can figure out why you love what you love, you have to understand who you are. And so he writes unto them, and he says, here's who you are. If you're a Christian, you are children of God. He's going to talk that way six or seven different times. He's going to tell you, you are a child of God. And later on in chapter 3, he's going to make another comparison because the alternative is either you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. Now, that's not flattering, but that's reality. So knowing who you are is eternally important. 
So he says, listen, everybody here who's a Christian, you're a child. But some of you are fathers, really mature. You've known God. You have the faith. You've been mature. You're growing. And some of us are more like young men who we haven't been saved all that long. And we're in a battle because he says, you have fought and overcome the wicked one. But you'll notice in the text that all these little names and identity marker he calls them because he wants them to see themselves differently, hear me, differently than everybody else in the world around them. He wants them to think of their prime identity this way, who you are spiritually. He doesn't describe their identity as their job or whether they're married or whether they have money or status or position. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, who you are primarily is who you are in your relationship with God. So he tells these groups, here's what you are. You know God, he says to one group. You are forgiven. That's who you are. You are victorious over Satan. You are strong. See, he wants them to say, hey, every day, if you're going to live in this world and not fall prey to this world, you have to know who you are. You have to know who you are spiritually. You have to have your root and foundation right. You have to define yourself by what God says of you, what God thinks of you, and who you are in Christ. There is a Canadian symbologist, and his name is Jonathan Pujol. And he, in his own way, not a believer, is fighting against the worldliness of our age. And he's doing it this way. It's unique. He's retelling the original fairy tales the way that they were meant to be told. Because he wants to say, I want to fight against what people are telling people, young people today, who they are. Because he doesn't believe in it, much like we would not. And so he says, I want to go back and tell them, no, this is who you are. You are male and you are female and you have a character and you're this and you should have these traits and these values and these ethics. And so he's going back and retelling how the fairy tales were meant to be read and interpreted. And the first one he does is Snow White. And in an interview with intellectual and psychologist Jordan Peterson, they're talking about Snow White and Mr. Peugeot says this, Snow White is no longer a fairy tale. In our world, it's a reality. He follows that with an explanation. Listen to what he says. He says, all of us know the phrase, mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? He says, that came into vogue in 1937, but the versions of Snow White... Before 1937, the mirror wasn't on the wall, it was in her hand. And it went mirror, mirror in my hand, who's the fairest in the land? And he says, the evil queen's magic mirror had two functions, and I shared this with the teens on Thursday night. It had two functions. It affirmed her beauty when she looked into it every time, because every time she looked in it, here's what she expected to have back. You're the fairest. You're the best. And that's why she looked into it. Unfortunately, one day, she was told that she wasn't the fairest anymore. And she went into a rage, and she hunted down Snow White. It it became ugly. But that's why she looked into it. She wanted to see how great she was. But the second function was that she could have surveillance. She could look into the mirror 
And she could see everybody else in her little sphere of influence and to make sure that her supremacy was greater than everybody's else. And so here's what Peugeot says. He says, today, we don't hold a magic mirror in our hand. We have one in our pocket. It's called a phone. See, he says, today's magic mirror 24-7 allows you to be told who you are. It affirms your beauty, your greatness, your intellect, your smart, whatever it is. See, all the apps and settings on your phone, they are tailor-made so that they can constantly be telling you that you deserve to be the center of the universe. And as you look into your phone, or can I say your magic mirror, and you begin to see on your social media accounts the followers and the likes and all the comments, see, you begin to think, And you begin to feel that you are the fairest of them all. See, it's not just for that. It's not just to affirm how great you are. It's for your surveillance, isn't it? See, you can look on there and you can compare yourself to everyone else around you. And you could put pictures on there. And you can show people all about your life. And you can be supreme. See, you can be the one who goes on the best vacation. See, look, I went here, and you tell, I even watched people. I went here, and this is how much it cost to go there. See, you could be the parents who have the smartest kids, and my kids next year, they're doing, and they're having, and they're going. You can be the best. Oh, my marriage, my husband and I, we're so close. We have the best marriage, and we have the most stuff. See what we can do? We just get out our magic mirror and we look into it and we can have the world constantly defining who we are by all the things that we have. But here's what Peugeot says at the end. The more we look into the magic mirror of the world, we deceive ourselves because looking into it, it makes us think that we are like Snow White when ultimately we are really like the evil queen. It's foolishness, isn't it? See, he says, if you look in the wrong mirror, you're going to get the wrong view of yourself. See, if the world defines you, then you will be in love with the world. If God defines you, you'll be in love with him. Did you catch the last phrase at the end of verses 12 and 14? Because 12, 13, and 14 are filled with repetitive phrases about fathers and children and young men, and they overcome the evil one, and they are forgiven. And those things are repeated until you get to verse 14 in the last phrase. And the little difference is this, and the word of God abides in you. Can I say this? See, here's what John offers the believers. See, he says, the word of God is a different kind of mirror. In fact, James 1 says that you look into the mirror and you look into the Bible because it's a kind of mirror. And if you just look at it and glance at it, see, you'll go your way and forget what manner of person you are. You'll forget who you really are. But if you pick up the mirror, the the Bible, God's word, and you keep looking into it, And see, the mirror is different than the magic mirror. It's not magic, but it is supernatural. When you look into it and really look into it, it's the only mirror in all of history that looks into you. So Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. And it is a critic, a critic 
of the thoughts and intents of your heart. You see, the magic mirror, can I say, the mirror of God's word, it looks into you and it critiques you. And it's the only mirror that can critique your life, not just on the outside and what things everybody else sees, but it critiques you on the inside and who you really are. That's the mirror of God's word. That's where we need to get our definition of who we really are. So you see the connection John's making? John is saying, where you get your definition is where you'll get your desires. Your identity will determine your activity. Who you are will determine what you love. And so far, we've looked at the first paragraph, and it says, this is who you are. Despite all the other things in your life, your background, your culture, your ethnicity, your job, your staff, all those things are okay, but your primary identity and how God wants you to see yourself, who you are is your relationship with him and your growth spiritually in your life. And he says, based on that, let me tell you what you need to do in order to live that out. And that's verses 15 through 17. Your activity is based on your identity. Who you are will show you what you love. And so far, as I said before, 1 John, we've been told love God, love others over and over numerous times. But now for the first time and only time in this epistle, out of 51 times John uses the word love, he's going to use this one time and say, here's what you don't love. Literally, it means in the text in the Greek, stop loving the world. It is the first of ten imperatives. The entire structure from 1 John all the way out from here to the end of the book is ten commands, one after the other, all the way to the end of 1 John. And this is the first one. And all the other nine are based on it. And here it is. You can't love the world and God simultaneously. It's in contrast with 2.10, where it says, love God, love others. You love them, but you don't love the world. Those two loves are antithetical. And all through 1 John, all of the dualisms, light and dark, love and hate, death and light, God and Satan. Here's another one. You can't love God and love the world at the same time. Imagine this on your wedding day. Just remember back on your wedding day. And you're going to come down the aisle and you're going to make your vows. And one of the two of you says this, I love you and I really love you and I want to be married to you. And then another person walks down the aisle and I want you to know, although I really love you, I really love this person too. Are you okay with that? You're going to say like Pastor Walker, that's out of a nightmare, right? A horror show, right? Can I tell you this? We try to do it all the time. Imagine God and his thoughts when you have told him that you love him supremely above all else. He's the only one that controls the center of your life. But then you bring in and say, oh, by the way, God, I love you, but I also want to love this simultaneously. See, the reason we can't is because the two loves are incompatible they're incompatible, we've learned, because of who you are and because of who he is. And the tension, notice in the text, is not whether you will love or not love something, because to be human is to love. The tension is not between loving and not loving something, it's loving what? See, what will you love? Will it be God or will it be the world? And so you have to ask yourself the questions when you read this text. I wrote down ones, I asked myself, are your, are your loves aligned with God or the world? Ask yourself that. 
Now, he's not talking actions yet. He's talking attitudes. He's talking the inside. Here's why. Because here's what John knows. God wants your heart, but the world wants your heart. At the same time. So John wants to say, let me tell you, in your struggle to decide what and who you're going to love, there's two reasons why he would admonish us not to love the world. And I'll close with this. He says, you can't love God and the world at the same time, verse 16, and it begins with the word because, look at it in your text, for, see the little word for or because, because all that is in the world, let me give you the reason, and we're going to skip over just for a moment the three, the little triad in the middle, and I want to make a sentence out of it, ready? For all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now that little word used twice is crucial, follow me. The word from is the Greek word ek, and it always means source. It means origin. It's about where you come from. So if you are from the Father, you have a relationship that comes out of him, from him. He's the source. Then that will determine your love. But if you are from the world and the world gives you this, it's their source, and that's what dictates everything in your life, see, then you will love the world. It's, let me give it to you this way. It's like being from New Jersey. If you are from New Jersey, there'll be certain things that mark people from New Jersey. You don't say, and I learned this early on. I was born in New Jersey, but I left when I was two and came back 27 years ago. But I had to learn, it's not the beach, it's the shore. You don't say, and I was from the Midwest, it's not water, it's water, right? It's not a slice of pizza, it's a slice of pie, which is very confusing when you're thinking about dessert. You do not foolishly get out of your car and think that you're going to pump your own gas. Not when you're from New Jersey. You will love bagels because we have real ones and everyone else has fake ones. And we will know what no one else hardly in the world knows. We know what pork roll is. And we like it. Why? Because we are from New Jersey. Because when you're from New Jersey, see, there are things that go with it. And if you are from God, there'll be things in your life that will be true of that. And if you are from the world, there'll be things that are true of that. It'll mark you. It will be obvious. You can go anywhere else in the world. And I've been all over Europe, and I lived in England, and they have accents. But there is no accent that's similar to New York and New Jersey. It's very different. It's obvious. And can I tell you, it's, so, it's that way in the spiritual world. If you are in love with God, God, because you're from him, it'll be obvious. And same thing on the world side of things. So how do you know, Pastor Walker? How do you know if you're from the world? Well, he doesn't leave us guessing. He leaves us three things, three definite marks. And I want you to think very critically in these last few minutes of our sermon today. I want you to think and evaluate your life and really be honest about what's going on inside of you this morning because he's going to tell us three obvious truths of people that love the world the first one he says is desires of the flesh before i go any further let me give you a definition of world the world is a comprehensive sphere of life that is in control of the evil one you'll see at the end of this book he says the whole world lies in the control of satan that's the whole world 
So he obviously says, if you're a Christian, stop living for the world because the world around you is controlled by Satan. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that because the world serves ice cream that you can't have it. It doesn't mean you can't go to a movie. It doesn't mean you can't stay at a resort or own a car or any of those things. That's not what it means. Because worldliness is not primarily external. It's primarily internal. And in our circles in times past, we used to like to say, oh, you're worldly. And it's always because of what you are doing. But what you do is only expression of what you are. And that's why the three things are marked off, two of them, by the word desire as a preference. See? Desire the fleshly things. Desire what you see with your eyes. Pride of life. And then he says all these things and its desires, verse 17. See, he says it three times. Why? Because he wants to get your attention. Don't look just on the outside because you can fool yourself. You can fool yourself. He's, what he's saying is it's about what is going on inside of you. And the word desire is a Greek word that has a little prefix on the front of it. And that prefix intensifies the word. Instead of desires, we really would say in English, it's controlling desires or defining desires. It's the driving force in your life. It's what you really want supremely. It's what you want above anyone or anything else. It really moves you. So here's what John says. You want to find out if you're of the world? You got to go below the surface. You got to look under the hood. This is not a tire problem. This is an engine problem. So he says, look below the surface of your life and ask yourself, what are the wants of your flesh? That's not just, as you might run to in your mind, it's not just sexual perversion or immoral acts, although it can be that. It's attitudes. See, parents, if you're going to culturally criticize the world in which we live, we cannot just evaluate things that are right for our children based on what the world does. That's true. But beyond that, and can I say below that, we have to evaluate what the world desires by doing that. 2 Timothy 4.10 says of a close associate of the Apostle Paul for years. When Paul needed him the most, it says of Demas, for he has forsaken me, having loved this present world. See, Demas's problem was an inside problem from the very beginning. It's what he loved. It, what dro- it was the driving force in his life. And every time John uses flesh, that term in his writings, he counters it. And antithetically, it's always about the spirit. And so what he's asking us today is really who controls what you want on the inside? Is it the spirit of God and what he wants? Or is it your flesh? Is it what you want in contrast to that? See, your desires, your hungers, your longings, are they aligned with God or with the world? And of course, you can play the sex card and you can think that that's the main thing. But can I tell you this? Your desires go way beyond that. It's also about what you find comfort and luxury in. It's what you find in your life that everything revolves around. It's the self-centered card. Really, is it always about you? Is that why your marriage is where it is today? Is that why your relationships with people, including your family members, are down, going downhill all the time? See, because what you want determines everything. 
So it's the reason why you listen to the music that you listen to, because that kind of music and its words, it evokes autonomy, independence from authority, so that you don't have to listen to God, you don't have to listen to your parents. It provokes violence, lust, drunkenness. That's what our world is about. It's the way, it it also is what moves you to pick the clothes that you wear. And this is what's in your wardrobe. And this is why you do this and how you make a, this is how you look. Why? Because you're driven by it. But all those outward expressions are internalized first, he says. That's what the desire of the flesh is. That's the first mark. The second one is desire of the eyes, verse 16. Visual. I'm convinced more and more that what you watch shows what you want. Definitely true. We live in a world full of images and screens. TVs, computers, movies, billboards, video games. And we always say, hey, if it has this language in it, we won't watch it. If it has this kind of scene in it, we're not going to watch it. And those are all well and good. But can I tell you, that's only superficial. You know what we need to say when we look at things? Have you ever asked yourself, what desires are embedded in this technology? What desires? Is it really just, hey, we gave you TV and we've given you the, the internet and social media and all that, and we've given you a cell phone you know, because we just want you to be able to communicate better and have better relationships. Is that really what it's all about or is it more? How are the things that I see and watch, how are they shaping and forming and unfortunately deforming my desires? What about the entertainment, the things I watch, the movies, the video games, spending so much time on YouTube? See, what does social media, have you ever asked, what does social media do to shape my desires and my wants? What do I really want when I watch these things? And it's not just the obvious things like pornography, what I watch, it's like Fox News and CNN. See, all of those things, when I look at them and I watch them, they are molding and forming my life. They are telling me, unfortunately at times, that what I think politically is more than what I think biblically. They're lies, all of them. But what if I'm watching and if I'm really introspective, I'm watching them because I just don't want to be uncool. What if I know that everyone I know talks at work and at school, and this is what they watch, and this is what they do on social media, this is what, and I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be one who's different. And so I go ahead and love the world and go along because it makes me happier. Why? Because I'm acceptable to others. Have you ever thought down that deep about what you might really be wanting? So he says, here's the marks, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, And lastly, the pride of life. It's living now as if there's no later. It's living as if the material stuff that we have and own is really all there is. It's not that you can't have nice things. You just can't let nice things have you. See, it's an overconfidence in my resources. It's finding my security in my identity and what I have instead of who I have. In other words, the unholy trinity of verse 16 are just no more, listen, than God substitutes. The desires that we should have should not be controlled by the flesh or the world or the devil. 
but they should be controlled by God. See, it's this mistake we have made as human beings from the very beginning. If you read Eve in Genesis 3, 6, you know what the Bible says? She looked at the tree that God forbade and told her not to have it. She says it was good for food. She wanted it. It was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. She broke all three of them. The Eve eating the fruit from the tree was the first act of worldliness, and it wrecked and ruined everything. Maybe you've experienced that. See, maybe the choices that you're making, they're not consistent with God, and you know it. They're not consistent with his word, but you continue to do them. You are headed down a journey away from Jesus to ruin and destruction, as John Bunyan said. But the last reason, and I'll close, not only is it incompatible with God to love the world and God the same, way, same time, it's also this, it's not permanent. Christians should not love the world. You know why? Because it's temporary. It's transient. It's impermanent. The world, verse 17, read it. The world is passing away. It's passing away. Hear me. Now, present tense, it's going away now. Did you know everything around you will not last? The world's wisdom, the world's power, the world's riches, the world's everything One at a time, all of it is going away. Listen, and not only the external things that we love to hold on to, but the whole package, because you see what it says? Along with its desires. See, the whole thing, inside and outside, is anti-God. And so one commentator I read said this. It says, don't have living desires for dying things. But we consume ourselves with it far too much. Far too often. Do you have to ask yourself today, what do your loves say about who you are? What do your loves say? Not your mouth, not what you think in your mind, but your desires. The things that you really love, that you want, what drive you, the supreme desires and affections of your heart, what do they say? about who you really are, that you're from God or from the world. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. It is the mirror we should be looking into. But far too often, Father, and we want to repent of it today, Far too often, we look into the magic mirror of the world, which only tells us lies. Oh, they, they say they're truths. It masquerades as truths, but all they are is lies from hell. Father, help us. Help us to live out who we are in Christ. Help us the love that you've put inside of us. Help that love to come outside of us. And may it be demonstrated and expressed like cause and effect. May it be obvious that our wants are lined up with your wants and not the wants of this world. It is a difficult thing. We are surrounded by it. And therefore, we need you and we need each other. That's why we have small groups and D groups. That's why we have church services. Not because they are just some sort of religious thing that we do. 
No, we need it. We can't obey your commands apart from you and your word and, and each other. So God, help us. Help us to stay on the path, to face the tension of loving you and the world, all in the grace and the power and the wisdom that Jesus gives us and him alone. For in his name we pray. Amen.